Good morning. Welcome again to South Suburban Christian Church on this tremendous day, Palm Sunday, as we are celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Some folks say, how's it a triumphal entry? A week later, he finds himself on the cross. We'll talk a little bit about that, but we are excited to be with you today, and we're looking forward to beginning this week, this Holy Week, with you in so many ways that as a congregation, we're focusing on resurrection. As we go through this uh, period of darkness, uh, Maundy, Thursday, Good Friday, we're focusing on an empty tomb. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. You may have heard that we're going to be online as well for Easter Sunday at our regular times, 9, 10, 30, and 7. But we're also going to be having an in-person worship service in the parking lot here at the church uh, at 10.30 a.m. Hope that you can come, that you might be able to gather with the saints as we come to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were at our town hall meeting this past week, uh, you'll also remember that uh, we are planning to uh, begin again in-person worship on the first Sunday of May uh, with protocols. Uh, we'll still need to maintain masks and uh, six-foot distancing. And from all of the indications that we have been given by the Tri-County Health Department and uh, uh, the meetings that our staff and our governing board folks have been in on, we are expecting that uh, sometime through late summer, perhaps early fall, around maybe the 1st of September, uh, all protocols will be lifted. We will be back in worship without limitations on distancing, no masks, we'll be able to sing. Resurrection is coming in so many different ways, and we're excited to, to uh, be on the cusp of how God is leading the church, Universal, and South Suburban Christian Church out of what has been an arduous time in the wilderness these past 12 months. Uh, looking toward how the world might be, how we might re-engage with the world, how we might be the church in, in our community, uh, throughout the world, uh, for the glory of God to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. So uh, thank you for being with us, and thank you for committing to continuing the journey uh, as we go forward as followers of Jesus Christ. Today, as I've already said, is Palm Sunday. Uh, the uh, gospel lesson that we're going to read today comes from the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, would encourage you uh, to look up Matthew 21. People always say, uh, uh, you know, this Palm Sunday thing, I'm not really sure I get it. I don't understand what it's seeking to teach. And so we're going to be focusing on that. What does Palm Sunday do for us? How does Palm Sunday encourage us in our walk what does Palm Sunday say about God as revealed through Jesus Christ? So if you found Matthew chapter 21, let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of God! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, I shared with you early before I read the text today that I wanted to focus some with you today on what is the purpose of Palm Sunday. What does Palm Sunday teach us? How can Palm Sunday show us not only our need for the good news of Jesus Christ, but even more specifically, what Palm Sunday says about who Jesus is and how Jesus responds to us as uh, followers uh, of his and how Jesus relates to the world as well. Uh, so I'm going to offer a couple of points. There are certainly more, but I want to ca- offer a couple of points that I hope that you'll really think about this week as we go into Holy Week. So, Because even though there is a celebratory nature to Palm Sunday, it's also a, a, a celebration that is, that is overshadowed with some sense of, of, of darkness and, and uh, fear and, and wonder and uncertainty. And so uh, the, the first thing that I really want us to kind of drill down on and continue thinking about through this entire week is, is that Palm Sunday reminds us of our priorities. Palm Sunday reminds us of our priorities. I can remember the very earliest memory I have of seeing a parade. It was July 4th, 1976. I was a a young boy uh, growing up in a small town of about 2,000 people. And I I, I don't know if I understood all of the details about Independence Day and and, uh, the bicentennial uh, of our nation, but I knew there was going to be a parade. And I knew it was going to be a big parade because it was going to go all the way from the town park all the way to the one grocery store that was in the town, which was probably a distance of about uh, maybe a half to three quarters of a mile. But to a a young boy, seven years old, um, I was just overwhelmed at all of the people that were coming to town. Uh, the bands from the various high schools throughout the county, the fire trucks, the police cars, the VFW, the American Legion, uh, the National Guard, and, and all of the groups and, and, uh, and, and fraternities and sororities that make up small-town America were going to be at that little parade in my hometown. I don't really remember much about the parade. I couldn't tell you who was in it or who wasn't, but I knew there was a great deal of excitement. And I knew it had something to do with a nation. And I knew that even though there were folks that uh, went to the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church and the Christian church, at least on that particular day, we were all one. We were all together. We were excited about the future. We were proud of where we had been. We thought that it was a chance to begin again. Like I said, I don't know if I really understood it. I'm just kind of trying to share with you some of the 
uh, recollections that I have as an adult now, looking back as a child on that great parade. Well, you know, what was going on in Jerusalem on this day, I think probably captured a lot of the same sort of things that you might have experienced at your earliest memory of a parade. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, and the interesting thing is, is that procession, well, we're not sure if it was the same day, but there was another procession, another parade that had occurred in Jerusalem that wasn't that far separated from Jesus' procession into Jerusalem. Uh, it was about the year 30 A.D. or somewhere in there. Uh, Roman historians uh, have recorded for us that we are able to look at uh, that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, had led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem about the same time uh, as Jesus was making his procession into the city of Jerusalem. Now, I can only imagine the spectacle of that entry of Pontius Pilate with his Roman centurions coming into a conquered city. From the western side of the city, which is the opposite side from the one in which Jesus enters, Pontius Pilate leads these Roman soldiers who are on horseback, uh, who are marching uh, by foot, each soldier is clad with his leather armor, uh, polished uh, uh, shields and helmets to a high gloss, um, uh, hammered metal uh, at their sides, sheathed in their scabbards were swords that had been crafted from the hardest steel that was known at the world in the, at the time. And in their hands, a centurion carried a spear, or if he was archer, he carried a bow with uh, a, a, a sling of arrows on his back. Drummers would have been marching with them, beating out the cadence of the march. And this was no ordinary entry into Jerusalem. Pilate, as governor of the region, uh, which included not only Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, according to uh, how the Roman government was organized, but also Samaria uh, and Idumea, the three regions uh, which made up what we think of today when we think about the Holy Land. And it was standard Roman practice, this isn't something unusual for the Romans, that when a Roman captured a foreign territory, they would often, uh, in an effort to display, uh, well, their toleration of local religions. Romans never really cared uh, about your religions. You could continue worshiping your religions as long as you did two things. Uh, You were willing to pay some level of respect to the Roman gods, and you were willing to pay your tax. If you did those, you could pretty much do anything that you wanted with your own religions. And, and so the Romans, in, in an effort to, well, to publicly show respect uh, for the religion of the conquered people, would make a great display in coming into uh, the conquered city uh, under that guise. But that wasn't the real reason. The real reason was to remind them that even though that they had their religions, even though that they had their celebrations, Never forget that it is Rome who rules. It's Rome who is the conqueror, and you are the conquered. And your gods, although you may still want to worship them, were not powerful enough to resist the gods of Rome, for they believed that it was their gods who gave them victory on the battlefield. Now, the Romans were aware that Passover was coming for the Jews. And here's the real rub with this. The Romans were aware that this Jewish celebration of Passover 
was a celebration of a, of a moment in time when the Jews had overthrown uh, the bondage of another great empire, the Egyptian Empire. Passover was a reminder that God had liberated them from the oppression of the Egyptian pharaoh, that God had freed them from slaves, that God had promised to make them an independent nation, a nation that God would rule, and eventually where kings would be raised up, and the great heritage and lineage of King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And so the Romans knew about this, and this, this Passover meal could be a dangerous celebration. It would be real easy for the Jews to get caught up in the fervor of, of, this, of these memories of when they had been liberated once before, and they might stage some sort of liberation again. As a matter of fact, it had actually happened. Uh, about 80 years before Jesus uh, was born, uh, sometime around the year, well, we don't really know, depending on how you count years, Typically, historians count it around the year 4 B.C., uh, um, but, uh, but it probably was earlier than that. When an uprising had started um, in Sephoris, which was about five miles uh, from Jesus' boyhood home of Nazareth, and before it was over, this rebellion that had occurred in the northern part of Israel, what is the area of Samaria, uh, the city of Sephoris, the city of Emmaus, and the uh, 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 surrounding towns and villages had been completely destroyed by the Roman uh, army. After putting down that rebellion, uh, the Romans marched on Jerusalem. And after pacifying the city, the Romans crucified 2,000 Jews to remind them of who the victor really was. You see, Rome was very tolerant of lots of things, lots of lifestyles, lots of religions, lots of ethnicities, but what Rome did not tolerate was a person's desire to be free. They were intolerant of rebellion. They were intolerant of resistance. It was, as historians call it, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where Rome's power Rome's might, Rome's authority ensured that there would be no wars. Of course, there would be no freedom either. So this is why Pilate, Pontius Pilate had uh, 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 led this great procession, an effort to remind the conquered that you are still the conquered, and we shall always be the victors. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read some of the uh, ancient accounts of, of what happened following that parade, uh, Pontius Pilate and his Roman guards went to Antonius Fortress, which was a Roman garrison that had been built specifically adjacent to the temple compound. And that was so that the Roman soldiers could keep a close eye on the religious leaders, uh, to, to keep an eye on the Jews as they worship, to be able to listen to the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rabbis as they taught to ensure that no one would speak against the rule of Rome. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was meant to send a message to the Jews, to those that might be plotting against the Roman Empire. The spectacle was meant to reinforce that Rome was in charge. It was meant to intimidate, and it was, in, it was meant to pacify. 
everyone would think twice about rebellion on this particular Passover. And yet in the midst of this, on the other side of the city, a rabbi, a prophet, the text says, from Nazareth in Galilee, that same area that had rebelled some decades before, is coming into the city, not on a steed, but on a colt, not with soldiers, but with throngs who have lined the road to welcome him, not with chants of victory, but cries of Hosanna, meaning, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the Romans, this would have been an unusual sight. But for the Jews, their priorities were set and sure. Their expectations were set and sure. It is a reminder for us to place our priorities in order. Is our hope and is our safety and security rooted in the might of our ability to subjugate others under our will? Or is our hope in God? Is our priorities for our own benefits, our own position, our own power, our own prestige? Or is our priority to emulate the humble life of Christ and to serve even the least of these? Is our priority rooted in the confidence of our own knowledge, our own wisdom, our own economic power? Or is our priority rooted in submitting ourselves to the will of God that God can use us and call us however God chooses according to His divine and perfect will? Palm Sunday reminds us of our priorities. Palm Sunday reminds us of our expectations. For the people who had lined the streets on the other side of Jerusalem, the other procession that's taking place on the east side of the city, they would not have been confused. They would have remembered Zechariah's prophecy that referred to the coming of the Messiah from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus mounted that donkey, not just any donkey, but a specifically purebred colt, Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah's promise is coming true. This is how the people can know that their king is coming. By this action, what Jesus is declaring to the whole city of Jerusalem, from Pontius Pilate all the way down to the lame and the blind that gather receiving the alms of the passerbys on this Passover, what Jesus is saying is, Behold, your king is coming today. You see, the Jews knew their Bibles. And many people in the crowd would have remembered the words of the prophet Zechariah. They would have recognized what Jesus was doing and some of them may have even remembered that when Solomon became Israel's king, he too was presented to the city by riding on the donkey of his father David. That's in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. One clue that the people of Jerusalem recognized this connection when they saw Jesus riding on the foal of the donkey would have been what the people cried, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
this royal title, Son of David, this Hosanna, save us. May God save us. From Matthew 21, verse 9, are clear indications of the expectations of the people. The title that's being used by the people accurately identify Jesus as the rightful king, but they all, and they recognize that he was coming in the name of the Lord. Uh, also a, a reference back to Psalm 118, verse 26. And yet, even as they saw this image, as they saw the prophecies of Zechariah coming into play, there's another passage of Scripture often overlooked in Genesis 49 that just support the whole concept of their expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Write down and go read later, or you can turn to it now. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nation is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Jacob's prophecy meant that Israel's true king would come from the tribe of Judah, that in some way he'd be associated with a colt or a donkey. And what is only hinted at in Genesis was made plain in the gospel. Jesus, the son of David, from the tribe of Judah, rode into Jerusalem as Israel's rightful king. The response of the crowd completely uh, uh, supports that understanding as well. The text says that they laid their cloaks down in front of him. That is, is that they believed that they were welcoming a temporal king, a ruler. It is a sure sign that their understanding is, is that Jesus would make his way over those cloaks and to the temple itself, perhaps to Antonius' fortress, perhaps to where Pontius Pilate or King Herod would have lived in the palace and set himself up that day to be the king of Jerusalem declaring in word and deed that they were no longer under the subjugation and rule of the Roman Empire. It was a salute, if you will. It was a statement that they would be willing to follow this king into battle. It was a statement that they were ready to fight, to die, for what Jesus was about to begin, or so they expected. The other members of the crowd cut branches. We know from the other Gospels that these were palm branches. Not just the branches and leaves of the trees that might have been readily available, but the palm branch had become a civic symbol, a symbol of civic pride to Jerusalem. It was on the, on the seal of the city. It was on the coinage of the city. It was a reminder <clears throat> that, uh, uh, that the city was the seat of King David. The palm branch for them would be like waving the American flag today for us. It was a, 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 a statement of nationalism. It was as if they were lined waving uh, uh, their flags for the conquering king who would come in and liberate them from the bondage of Rome. You see, in those two actions that the Gospel writer gives to us, he sets clearly the expectations of the people. That is, is that the people wanted a king to liberate them temporally, 
here on earth. There there was little, if any, understanding of their spiritual needs, of their emotional needs, of their human needs, of of their relationship with God and Jesus Christ. There there was little, if any, understanding of the brokenness that existed between the Creator and the creation, between the Redeemer and those that needed to be redeemed. And one of the things that's most poignant, for me at least, in in, in the midst of this Gospel story, is, is that the people understood what the problem was. The problem was Rome. It never even crossed their mind that perhaps... The problem was within their hearts. For those people that lined the streets shouting praise to Jesus, the problem was everywhere else except right here. The problem was everyone else except them. And I think that's the key when it comes to understanding our relationship with God through Christ. That all of my problems are everyone else's fault. And the way we fix these problems is with things that won't negatively impact me. I think one of the things that Jesus does poignantly in His ministry, in His teachings, and in His actions this day is to remind us that in the midst of evil, in the midst of violence, in the midst of the most horrific things that happen in our community, in our nation, and around the world, The one place that we are so timid to look toward, the one place that we are afraid to gaze deeply at, is the darkness within our own hearts, the brokenness of families, the lack of respect that we have for neighbors and friends, the placing of ourselves ahead of everyone else and ahead of everything else. What are some of the ways that we can address issues in our culture? What are some of the things that we might do to address the problems of violence and hatred? Take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and recognize (laughs) that what the old preacher said is true. We all need Jesus. We need Christ to transform us, to renew us, and make us whole again. Finally, the thing that Palm Sunday reminds us us of is that too often our cheers can easily become jeers. Well, I have to admit, that point, I think, has been in every single Palm Sunday sermon that I have preached for over 25 years. Because it's a poignant example of how we human beings can be so fickle that our cheers can be jeers. In chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 15 through 23, Pilate is trying to decide what to do with Jesus after the chief priests and the elders have demanded that Jesus be executed for treason, claiming that he has set himself up as king over uh, the emperor of Rome. Pilate can't find anything wrong, and he asks the crowd what he should do with Jesus. And the same crowd that just six days prior had shouted, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same voices chanted with anger and hatred and spittle flying, crucify him, 
Crucify him. Crucify him. But what we human beings often mean for evil, (laughs) God uses for good. The first time we hear that phrase, what we human beings mean for evil, God uses for good, comes in Genesis 50, verse 20, when Joseph tells his brothers who had uh, sold him into slavery, told their father that he had been killed by a wild animal, that their act of anger and deception and, and jealousy that they had for their brother was actually used by God to not only save Egypt, but Israel from the famine that would come to the land. God takes the rebellion. God takes our human treason. And He nails it to the cross through the hands and feet of His only begotten Son. And on the shoulders of Jesus, He places the weight of our brokenness, the weight of our sin, the weight of our rebellion. And then, after three days, He casts off the grave clothes and walks out of that tomb. Well, well, that's next Sunday's message. (laughs) But suffice it to say, that we human beings are too often, well, human. Subject to sin. Subject to evil. Capable of glimpses of wonder and grace and mercy. We're after all made in the image of God. We bear His image. But man, can't we too often just utterly blow it. You don't need to tell me what you already know. We live in a world where pollution causes disease, where anger leads to murder, where greed leads to theft, where fear leads to persecution, and where the corruption of the perfect order of creation is perverted. You know, last year, and it's been just over a year, I was with you here last Palm Sunday. We had just been introduced to a virus that had been named the coronavirus We didn't know how it worked. We didn't know how things were going to play out. But we knew we'd persevere. And we knew we would persevere not because of our strength, but because of God's faithfulness. And here we are this Palm Sunday. Having more folks joining us in online worship than joined us in in in-person worship a year ago. You have carried this weight well, continuing to meet and care for one another, pray for one another. But it's been because of God's faithfulness that we've been able to make our way through this wilderness. And even though we are prayerful and hopeful that this virus will soon be eradicated, there is another virus that no medicine can cure, and it's the virus of human sin. And only the great physician, Jesus Christ, can heal that. If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, would you do that today? Say yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? Nothing more, nothing less.
you've made that decision today, would you click on that box if you're on our online.church platform, or would you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we might walk with you as you begin this life anew as a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen.